I'm Duncan McLeod, and this is Tech Central. My guest on the podcast today is Lou Clarson, who I think needs a little introduction in the venture capital market, certainly in South Africa. Lou is co-founder with Vinnie Lingham of Silicon Cape, and he also founded Newtown Partners with Vinnie. And, um, well, he has some strong and interesting views on a range of topics, everything from uh, crypto to venture capital investment. So we're going to we're going to touch on all of that uh, hopefully during the course of our podcast today. So, Lou, it's great to see you here. How's 2022 treating you so far? Thanks, Duncan. Good to have you. Good to be on the show. And uh, yeah, we're off to, I think we're off to a great start in 2022. Um, the VC market is exceptionally hot at the moment. And I think that African startups have raised more capital in the first three months this year than they raised in the whole of last year, which in and of itself was a a record-breaking yeah. year, so we really have been very busy. That's astonishing. It's an astonishing figure, actually. Um, it would be interesting to see how it's going to continue, given the global geopolitical <laughs> developments over the last few weeks. Uh, hopefully there isn't a let-up, but uh, who knows what's going to happen. The world is a very uncertain place at the moment. But uh, let's just go back a little bit, Lou, and uh, talk a bit about Newtown Partners. How long has it been around for now, and um, what sort of investments have you made in that period? Yeah, so we've been around seven and a half years now. It sometimes feels like it's a lot longer than that. Um, uh, I think that a, a couple of VC firms in South Africa started, you know, within a year of each other at about that time. So I think that it was kind of when a bunch of us decided that South Africa was ready to do VC in a U.S. venture style. Um, I think before that, there was it was really difficult to do raise capital at the early stages, whether it was Seed, whether it was Angel, whether it was Series A. Um, and it was mostly because fund sizes were small. Uh, there weren't a lot of angel investors that were doing these kinds of deals. And so we started doing some angel deals and Vinny and I, and we decided that we wanted to create a permanent vehicle that we could do these in. Uh, he was also participating in what was then Dragon's Den season one uh, on right. television. And so he decided, uh, we decided that we we're going to create uh, a company that will enable us to take those and use it sort of as a, as a, a launch, uh, I guess, opportunity, uh, and then continue to do the work that we've been doing. The investments that we've predominantly focused on have honestly changed, I think, over time. Our approach has always been that we don't want to be generalists. We prefer to do things or invest in areas where we think we're going to be able to create value for the startups, for ourselves, and more recently for other investors as well. So. Initially, we were sort of focused around, I think, platforms and two-sided marketplaces. We made a bunch of those kinds of investments. And Sweep South was probably the most successful one that we did in South Africa in that space. And we sold those shares ultimately to NASPAS, and we were very fortunate that 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 thesis worked out quite well for us. We spent 2017, 2018 doing a whole lot of uh, fintech blockchain investments, um, some of them more successful than others, but still very, very super interesting to be working with such new technology and emerging business models and kind of being right at the point where there were no answers. It was just a question of what, what did we think we could possibly do with the technology and with startups in that space. Um, and then sort of more recently, we started investing along a supply chain and logistics thesis. Uh, so it's not that we're not doing investments into those other spaces. It's just that what happens is that we kind of, I think that over time we realize that there are different industries and service areas that are more, there's more potential for disruption. And I think one of the things that, that 
is interesting to us about venture capital is is that we think it works most effectively in industries that are large, um, where there are big incumbents that don't necessarily move as quickly as, as maybe some of the smaller players and it creates an opportunity for a bottom uh, market entry, which kind of changes the base of competition. So for us, the most recent area that we've been focusing on uh, with uh, Imperial with our most recent fund has been supply chain and logistics, and we've been doing that now for two and a half years. Okay, and and you actually have a quite a close working relationship with with Imperial, as I understand it, um, Imperial Logistics specifically, uh, and um, that that came about through, uh, as I understand it, a, a meeting of minds with the former CEO, uh, and um, that you are now focusing very much on something called corporate venture capital. What does that mean exactly? Just take us through maybe the uh, the history of the um, relationship with Imperial Group and and what CVC is particularly. Yeah, so it's interesting. It's, it's kind of always about who do you know? Um, and so in right. this particular case, what happened is that Imperial was going through a restructuring. They were at the point of just before they had split into what became Imperial Logistics and Motors. And the C or the Group FD at the time was having a conversation um, with Vinny and kind of saying, you know, this is one of those industries that's going through a lot of change. We're seeing a lot of startups. We're seeing uh, a lot of money being raised into businesses operating in this space. We have thought about this in many different ways. Um, and we've tried some of them and some of them have been more effective than others. And, you know, we thought, let's have a conversation. We actually ended up having a conversation at uh, OR Tambo Airport um, in a coffee shop there in between sort of uh, flights and and it, it turned into a conversation that progressed over time and so sort of i think that was maybe two, that was for like four and a half years ago um and so it does take a long time for that wheel to turn and for for you to get the internal stakeholders on board but we've been very fortunate that imperial has been a really strong partner for us they've been very easy to work with more recently, they've been acquired by DP World, and, and we think that that creates a whole bunch of yeah. new opportunities outside of South Africa as well. But the fundamental issue here is just that the rate of change that is happening as a consequence of emerging technologies is so great that it is really hard for businesses in traditional industries to continue doing things the way that they've always been doing. Mm -hmm. um, and so they have said, well, we need to be more agile. And I think that the challenge that you immediately have in a large organization is that you're naturally optimized for efficiency. And when you optimize for efficiency, you do not want things to be done in a different way every time it needs to be done. You want people to follow a process and you effectively want to cut out all the costs out of those processes and really have a really strong, optimized, low cost um, business. But that's not how you create innovative innovative opportunities. And so corporates that have attempted to do this themselves have generally struggled. Um, except what happened is a couple of years ago, a couple of corporates started experimenting with this idea of saying, well, what if we had our own venture capital firm? What if we said, we want to invest into startups, but we're not going to do it as the parent organization because we know that the parent organization has all of these disadvantages. Advantages insofar as doing their core businesses, but disadvantages when it comes to working like a startup. So let's set aside a pool of capital. Let's create a thesis on where do we think we want to go and invest this capital. 
and let's go and invest that capital. And then at some point in time, there's a process whereby you sort of look at the opportunities that have made it, how the market has changed or, or developed, and you look at ways to integrate those organizations at that point in time, startups that are many number of years uh, later post-investment, how do you then integrate them into the parent organization? So we went through a similar process with Imperial where we said, what is Imperial's business and, and industry and service area is going to look like in five to 10 years time? And what do we think it tells us about where we should be in investing um, resources now? And we've done 10 investments. The 11th one is gonna close this week. Uh, we have a few more in the pipeline. Uh, and they're all very focused around <clears throat> what does the future of Imperial look like? Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and is the intention of Imperial's involvement here that they would eventually buy up some of these startups and that become part of Imperial Group? I think that there is a – it's interesting because it, the perception is that that's why you would do it, right? Because why would you bother? Yeah. Um, but there's also a really, really strong case – for two other things. Uh, and the one is market intelligence and to understand how do these right. uh, areas develop over time. And so by investing into startups and understanding some of the challenges that they're having or some of the successes that they're having, you understand how adjacent market areas are developing over time. Um, and I think that, that certainly another part of it is to say, well, if there is an opportunity to create something that's compelling at some point in time in the future that is strategically aligned, then absolutely we, we do go about looking at that integration. But th that timeline is so long that really for us, it's about how do you understand how your industry is evolving over time? How do you do it in a way which doesn't actually, if done well, doesn't cost you anything and, and should in fact generate financial returns for you? And you could look at it in a couple of, couple of different ways as well. You could think of it as an offensive tactic. Uh, you could also look at it as a defensive uh, uh, strategy. Interesting. Okay. Now, um, you, you mentioned Sweep South as, as one of your early investments, but I uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe most of your uh, of the invest of the ten investments you've made have been offshore. Is that right? Yeah, so we, we've been investing into South African startups, had been investing into yeah. South African startups. More recently, when we've wanted to do uh, investments in supply chain and logistics, we've had a, you know the opportunity to look at um, uh, startups in this space more globally because of the, the mandate that we had for the fund. And, and unfortunately, what we realized with many of the supply chain and logistics opportunities that we saw in South Africa is that they really are hampered by some of the exchange control regulations in South Africa. And, and it happens on two fronts. So the first thing is that it's really hard for a South African startup to create an international offshore structure that enables people that are bringing capital from outside of South Africa to invest into, into those startups with a high degree of certainty that you'll be able to get those returns back out again when you want to exit. Uh, yeah, so as we've been investing into global startups and looking at international or South African startups um, from from that same fund, what we've realized is that, you know, there really are constraints that South African startups have that many other startups in other markets don't have. Um, some, some of those are that it, they don't have international structures that enable offshore investors to be able to take stakes and have clarity around the um, regulatory framework or the, the, the legal frameworks that they're investing under. 
Um, and then they also have the challenge of like local funds who have constraints around where they can deploy capital. Because at some point in time, you had a situation where uh, local VC investors were incentivized to raise capital through what was then called Section 12J of the Income Tax Act. But that thing also has limitations on where you can deploy capital. Specifically, you can't deploy more than I think it's something like 80, 20% of the capital outside of South Africa. So really a pity um, and, and certainly something that people in our ecosystem in South Africa are, are looking to address through things like the South African Startup Act. <laughs> so I'm going to start, delve uh, a little bit into a little bit more detail about this and the impacts that it's having. Uh, you, you say it's, it's both in terms of South African companies looking to invest abroad, take their IP abroad, because foreign exchange controls are not, they're not just about um, the, ex- the exportation of, of monetary value, right? They're also about the exportation of intellectual property. Just take us through what the rules ex- ex- say exactly and how this impacts on local tech startups. Yeah, you're 100% right. So South Africa has an unusual exchange control regime. Most places say, well, we have some con- controls over your ability to move capital in and out of the country. Right. In South Africa, for a very long time, we've had a combination of of capital controls and IP restrictions or IP controls. The IP controls are there predominantly, or the intention behind it originally was to say, well, if you've got IP that's being created in South Africa, then South Africa should benefit from the value of that IP once it is eventually commercialized. The reality is that the capital pool in South Africa is not deep enough in order to fully commercialize the IP that is created in South Africa. And, And to be clear, that exists for any emerging market. The, 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 by far the most capital that goes into later stage opportunities will come from the US in particular, but also UK and, and Europe and more, more recently from Asian places or locations sure. as well. And so what it means in South Africa's context is that once you've created an early version of, of your product, usually software, <clears throat> if you want to get international investors to give you that next same million dollars or five million dollars in order yeah. to take it offshore and expand it to other markets, uh, you have to go to the Reserve Bank of South Africa and you have to make an application and say, please, am I allowed to transfer the IP and to have make a case for why that IP should be transferred? And at this point in time, we're in a position where those approvals are almost never granted. When they are granted, they're granted on the basis that there is um, an exchange of value and that exchange of value actually triggers a tax event. So, uh, you know, it's it's once again sort of a bunch of really unintended consequences of people trying to do the right thing and saying South Africa should benefit from the things that South Africa creates. But in reality, it having the opposite effect because the capital then doesn't find its way into South Africa at all. and, and so it never gets commercialized at the level that it would have been had international investors had the opportunity to easily move capital in and out and also move IP in and out. Mm. So it's, it's not only disincentivizing inve- foreign investment in, in, in local tech startups, but it's actually making it more difficult to launch a tech startup from South Africa and may in fact be encouraging entrepreneurs, guys who are starting startups, to actually look at, do, look at doing it in another market rather than doing it here. Absolutely. And that's, there's no doubt that there's a trend towards that. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, uh, the, I think that there's the added, I guess, complication that South Africa is not actually, when you think about technology startups, unless you're addressing the base of the market, it's not a very large addressable market. Yeah. And so if you're looking for something that is 
eventually going to be something that you want to sell to a developed market. Yes. Uh, it's difficult to prove out enough of that opportunity in South Africa. And so what we have encouraged our startups to do, if you say you want to create something that's globally competitive is in, you know, there's this perception, I said, mm-hmm. that, you know, you could prove out something in South Africa. And then once you get to a certain point, you kind of go, okay, well, now we're ready to launch into some other uh, market. But in reality, um, they're not always that comparable. And, and by the time you have something that you have to expand into another market, you then face these exchange control issues. And so we absolutely suggest just to entrepreneurs to bite the bullets a little bit and set up these structures as early as possible so that you don't run into these problems later on. And to be clear, this is not cheap. We're talking, I think, the current cost of setting up an, a Saab-compliant offshore structure yeah. um, is probably in the region of about 300,000 rand. Right, right. And have any of the uh, startups that you've invested in gone that route? And what has their experience been? Well, we haven't made any South African investments in the last while. And the ones okay. that we did were, were domiciled in South Africa and ultimately we exited in South Africa as well. Okay. So we were fortunate that we didn't have to deal with that. But the, the international ones yeah. have all got uh, inter, uh, offshore structures. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Now, have you personally had any conversations with the Reserve Bank about this issue or, or has the industry, through some sort of industry representative body, had conversations with the South African Reserve Bank about this issue? It's clearly one that's affecting the startup ecosystem in South Africa and, and holding it back. Uh, and if you have had those discussions, what has the response been? So, we, many of us have had these conversations and we've had these conversations over many years. Um, And the problem is not that the Reserve Bank is not open to having these conversations. I think that it's just exceptionally hard to get all the different stakeholders involved in making a decision which appears at first glance to be something that is not to the benefit of of the average South African or South Africa's economy. So, So that we... We get it, we, we get the opportunity to have the conversation, but we've seen very little progress with the easing of those. Uh, more recently, there were relaxations around IP restrictions. At least that was the intention. Okay. Um, but unfortunately, the way that it was drafted had the effect that it created uncertainty about whether or not they could change their mind at a later stage once you've created the offshore structure. Um, and from a tax perspective, they can subsequently reverse it and then tax you on gains that are made in in the offshore structure. <laughs> and and so from an investor's perspective, clearly that regulatory uncertainty yeah. makes it impossible to even make the initial investment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the purpose of exchange controls, I mean, they go back all the way to the apartheid days when when uh, the apartheid government, the National Party, was concerned about capital flight because of sanctions. Uh, with 28, 27, 28 years into democracy now, um, yet these foreign exchange uh, rules, restrictions are still in place. Do, in your view, is there, is there still, should we still have these things in place as a, as a country? I mean, if, if the Reserve Bank was to remove all forex controls tomorrow, what would the impact be? I think that, th- I agree that that would be an oversimplification. Okay. Uh, I think that if we had to say, well, no more exchange controls, Free, free capital movement, I think that we would see wild swings given the size of our our, right. our country's economy. We would see wild swings in the value of the rand. And I think that that would make it really hard for the average person. So 
I think the point is to create regulatory certainty rather than to say we will remove all possible exchange control regulations. Okay. So we've said on a number of different occasions, make it a reporting requirement. Don't make it an application requirement. It's fine for you to ask us to say, well, what are you going to do with this IP and, and give us an indication of what value was created later on. Tell us how many jobs were created as a consequence of the inflow of capital, those kinds of things. That's all very helpful stuff. Um, but don't make it so hard and don't make it so uncertain, um, both in terms of before the capital comes in and after the capital has has come in. Um, the IP restrictions in particular, though, I want to say there is no place for them. That doesn't exist, to my right. knowledge, anywhere else in the world. And it just creates unnecessary friction for investors right. and is completely counterproductive. How long have those IP rules been in place? To my knowledge, they've been in place at the same time that the capital controls have been in place. Right, right, okay. Um, Now, when we chatted um, ahead of this podcast, you you mentioned that uh, foreign investors uh, typically want to invest under Delaware law. Uh, That's U.S. legislation, right? That's right. Okay, and they're seldom interested in investing under under South African law. So what what would you, if you were uh, an official sitting at the Reserve Bank, what would you be recommending um, be done to um, to encourage investment in the startup uh, scene in South Africa and to encourage foreign direct investment in South Africa and into the, into these tech startups. So I think that we have to think of this in phases, and I think that this okay. is something that maybe the our central bank doesn't always think about, which is to say we need to create a local in- enabling environment where it is easy to raise capital, where it's easy to, for investors to participate, easy for them to exit. Great. However, we also live in a global economy. And in the global economy, most of the capital that has to go to later stage startups comes from other countries. South Africa doesn't have a deep enough capital pool. And so what we need to be aware of is that these international structures will always be created uh, once a startup gets to a certain size. Uh, And that has got more to do with the investors wanting certainty and clarity around what, it, what, what their protections are as investors. So if you're a U.S. investor or you invest in Delaware law, it is uh, highly developed. You have lots of clarity around what your options are as an investor if certain things happen in the business that are not to your advantage. And, um, and there's a very efficient system for, for dealing with that under Delaware mm-hmm. law. When you're investing into, as an international investor, investing into a South African startup, and for that matter, it's not a South African issue only. It could, you could be investing into Ghana. You could be investing into uh, okay. you know, somewhere in Eastern Europe. It doesn't matter. The point is that as an international investor, you don't know what the local laws are. You don't yeah. know what your local protections are. You don't know when you read an agreement under that, uh, that has been prepared uh, under that jurisdiction whether or not things are enforceable or not. And so it just creates higher cost, takes longer to do transactions, there's more due diligence. And so it's just easier for international investors, particularly when you have when you have very competitive transactions, to just agree that we're going to do the transaction under Delaware law. And that is just the way it is. And everybody is familiar at that point in time with something called NVCA or National Venture Capital Association templates. Yeah. Uh, they're da- so these are standard agreements that are governed by Delaware law. You see them all day long um, and it is easy to contract under them and you have clarity around what your protections are as an investor. And so for South Africa, we have to take a two-pronged approach. 
create the, the right enabling environment locally for yep. the earlier stages, but know that at some point in time you have to create the international structure because because the international investors require it. Do you think the regulators in South Africa have a misguided view of the importance of technology and startups in economic growth? I think there's a perception, at least in the engagements that I've been in, that yeah. startups are or were for a very long time a white male thing. And that, that frankly, is a global issue. Um, okay. And I think that in South Africa, there was the perception that the number of jobs that are created by technology startups is just not going to make a dent in, in something like the unemployment rate. And that right. government policy for a long time, at least the way I understood it, was to say, well, let's get more people employed in primary industry, whether that's mining, agriculture, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and there's certainly a case to be made for that. But what that doesn't do is to create long-term competitive advantage, and it doesn't create knowledge workers, which means that you can't, you don't have the foundations for developing a knowledge economy. Uh, you don't have second order effects. You don't have no. higher multiplier effects by having people who are in very well paid jobs, being able to send their children to good schools, being able to you know look after their mothers and fathers. Yeah. Um, and so I think that as, as government, we have to once again realize that um, I do appreciate that there are many people that are unemployed in South Africa, but if we're going to reverse the problem, we have to go how do we get out of this hole? And, and, and the yeah. obvious one for me is that we have to turn into a knowledge economy, which we cannot do if we're not creating an environment that is conducive to the development of startups and for that matter, the development of people who are capable of employing their skills in a technology startup. It almost strikes me that there's too much focus on regulation for regulation's sake rather than creating an environment in which smaller companies can thrive. I mean, it almost seems that there's this regulation of these big corporate entities which dominate the South African landscape. Um, and below that, in the startup community, there's, um, there's, there's, there's almost no support at all being offered. Am, am I oversimplifying things by saying that? No, or do you think I, I that, think uh, that is kind of the government? Yeah. I think in South Africa, if I think about our experience with blockchain, for example, and, and, right. and, and getting the local regulators on, on site. So... Um, in our experience investing into blockchain startups in South Africa, what we found is that the regulatory regimes that the regulators try to apply to an emerging technology or to an emerging startup um, scene is one that is, borrows from uh, developed markets. And I think mm -hmm. that it's because South Africa has got this strange dichotomy of like a very well-developed portion of its economy and then a very undeveloped larger um, part of its economy and i think that what we need to do is to be lighter on the regulation the point right. is not to say no regulation is ever uh, useful but it's to say we've got to create an environment where we allow people the space to play to innovate mm -hmm. to do things that might make us a little bit uncomfortable but if we don't create that space for them to to play then we're never going to create something that is conducive to creating innovation. And if we don't create an, that environment, we're not going to create a knowledge economy. There's been a, Lou, there's been a lot of investment elsewhere on the continent um, and, and big investments in the, the tech startup space, um, particularly noticed um, some big deals happening in Nigeria in the last year or two. Uh, examples include uh, Stripe investing in Paystack, for example. But there have been others, and um, there have been some big investments in Egypt as well, 
and one or two in Kenya. Um, and, and some of these deals are significant. We're seeing some unicorns, so-called unicorns emerging in Nigeria now. Um, do you think that South Africa is at risk of s- sitting out this global investment wave that suddenly seems to be at least focusing some of its attention on the African continent because of our regulatory environment? Yeah, I absolutely do think that that's the case. So we are seeing examples of startups that have sort of a connection locally. So it might be, you know, yes. there's a South African co-founder, um, but but that the entity itself is not based in South Africa. So we're seeing right. that. And so if, as a South African, you know, it's easy to claim that and go, oh, well, you know, South Africa eventually has its own unicorn and South Africa is also in the game. And, and I think the point here is not to kind of have breaking rights. It's to say... Yeah. Um, what is it that is going on in Nigeria or Kenya or Egypt for that matter that is creating the inflow of capital? It's not because the, the markets are larger. I mean, in yeah. Nigeria, you could argue maybe uh, the, 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 the larger consumer markets, yes, but, but in many cases, uh, specific industries are much smaller um, in, in Nigeria. Um, and so it's also not that the regulations are, are, are maybe clearer. It's not that they're more sophisticated. It's not that there are smarter people there. It's not some other factor. It's simply just that it is easy to deploy capital there. And you don't have these constraints around creating the offshore structure, putting the capital in where the offshore structure owns the local entity mm-hmm. um, and having the certainty around as an investor, how you're going to be able to, what the treatment is going to be when you later want to exit. And I think that uh, well, I always need to be careful about how I position, you know, other African regulators because I sometimes sure. would would say, well, you know, it looks like they're not doing anything. And the reality is, well, I don't say that, but but it's kind of like the implication is, well, they're doing less than maybe what the South African regulators are doing. And I think a different way of positioning that is to say, is is yes, not not so much that they're doing less, but that. They're giving these industries an opportunity to evolve and to experiment and regulating once the abuse happens rather than in advance of what could possibly go wrong. And I think that that is definitely the approach that we need to take in South Africa. Um, Like I said before, you know, the IP restrictions don't exist anywhere else in in, in Africa. Um, The exchange control themselves, they do exist in other markets, but you don't have the same challenges around the uncertainty about what happens before and after you invest. Once you've made the application, once you've gone through the process, you have certainty. And what we need in South Africa is just that certainty as well. There are lots of great entrepreneurs in South Africa. Um, We have great universities uh, producing people who have STEM backgrounds, which are really um, conducive to the creation of technology startups. Uh, And there's no reason in my mind why South Africa shouldn't be the biggest center of entrepreneurship mm-hmm. and and in many measures we are the biggest center of entrepreneurship it's just that we're not creating the really large unicorn startups because we have these impediments that we've created to getting mm-hmm. them to that size because we make it so hard for international investors to participate later on yeah 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 Great, Lou. Interesting discussion. Quite, quite depressing discussion. Actually, to be honest, uh, let's hope there is some, uh, let's hope there is some movement from the Reserve Bank on dealing with some of these issues in due course. But before I let you go, we have to touch on on uh, on crypto as well. I just want to pick, pick your brain for the final third of the podcast on what's happening in the crypto space because you have uh, you have previously made investments in startups in blockchain, etc. Uh, and I know it's a passion of yours. Um, what's what's got you excited in the world of crypto right now? 
I think that the story actually hasn't changed since 2017, 2018. We're still okay. working on uh, what is called layer one technologies. We're still trying to solve the problem of how do you have high throughput, high security blockchains. Uh, we have at least had people that have moved in different sort of directions and sort of this mm -hmm. idea of a consensus um, mechanism, which is either based on proof of work or one based on proof of stake. Um, and, and I think that it's good that there are still people that are experimenting and trying to solve this problem. So we, we do now have blockchains that, that are capable of, transact uh, of transacting, say, at the same speed as the Visa network. But, um, but they, they still have challenges. Uh, we still haven't solved the most important issues that we need to solve around security. We're still not at a point where we can say, well, tomorrow everything will change, everything will be blockchain-based and decentralized and permissionless. Uh, and, I, and I think that that's okay. I think that it, I, I always think about how long we were waiting for the advent of the mobile era to come. And we were talking yeah. about it every year. And then suddenly one year they brought out the iPhone and it and, 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 and we were still a little skeptical, but it looked pretty interesting. And then I think a year later, they did the upgrade and brought out the, the, app, the Apple App Store, and then it dramatically yeah. changed. And yes. then we, the age of the, the mobile uh, had arrived. And I think we're going to yeah. see something similar here where we're still exploring. We don't know what the business models are. We don't know what the right technologies are. And, and frankly, we're, what we are seeing now is we're seeing technologies that are being built on top of technology. So we're seeing a stack being developed. Yeah. And if you think about the way that software gets created nowadays, you know, it, it is exactly like that. It's that you have foundational layers that you build on top of. And for most of the blockchain's history, we've been working at the very lowest layer. So the equivalent of for the Internet, you know, TCP IP of like, how do you transmit information between two computers? How do you transmit right. value between two computers? So I think for, for me, the technology is completely transformational. I am still a huge believer of it. I still believe that what it effectively is is the next version of the internet that allows the transfer of value instead of just the transfer of information. But it is going to take us some time to get there. I think that there are lots of really smart people who are working some very cool projects that are going to get us there faster than maybe we even think. Um, but we're not in prime time yet. And I think that anybody that is investing into crypto assets because they believe that if they're taking a long-term view on it mm -hmm. and they're saying that I believe that these things are a key part of, of the technology stack of the future, um, particularly in specific technology service areas, then I think that those are smart approaches to take to this. But if what you're doing is speculating on the basis of what the price is this morning versus right. what it's going to be tomorrow afternoon, I think... There are a lot of people that are going to lose money, particularly retail investors. It's exceptionally hard to to do market timing on 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 these day trades uh, on crypto yeah, assets yeah. because there's yeah. nothing fundamental driving that behavior. Um, we have thought very carefully about how do you value crypto assets. I think we're getting a lot closer to that, but it is still it's exceptionally hard to do because. Uh, there is a, a relationship between the strength of the network effect and the ultimate value of the the economic unit that is used in a in a decentralized network that we that is exceptionally hard to model out actually um, and so it's hard hard to value that that thing uh, which means it's really hard for me to tell you that a bitcoin should be worth a thousand dollars or worth should be worth a hundred thousand dollars 
um, or that Ethereum should be worth $10,000 for that matter. Um, so there is a lot of perception um, and speculation that is driving that activity. A lot of it has come down this year. It's interesting because for most of crypto's life, it was considered to be something that was uh, not correlated with traditional assets. And I think that as more and more institutional money is coming in, as you're seeing US companies suddenly holding Bitcoin on their balance sheet, that correlation is getting a lot stronger. And it's and it's getting to a point now where if the rest of the market moves up, it will move up. If the rest of the market moves down, it's going to move down. And yeah. I don't think that that's a good or a bad thing. It just tells us that there is more money coming into it from more places, which means that it's part of a basket of assets that you will eventually hold. Yeah. Uh, I still, you know, do I believe that you're going to have thousands and thousands of different crypto assets that you're going to have to use in different scenarios? I, I don't believe that at all. If I think that in payment systems today, it's the equivalent of like saying, if I want to pay somebody in Europe, uh, you know, I have to source the euros and then I have to transfer the euros. No, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to use a switch. So I'm going to send my rands. There's going to be an exchange that's going to be made and they're going to receive euros. And we're going to have the mm -hmm. same thing happening in crypto networks. Um, yeah. But they won't all survive and that's okay. Yeah. There was a view at one point that that perhaps Bitcoin was becoming like gold and that uh, it was becoming a safe haven investment. But uh, it looks like the Ukraine crisis has, has kind of um, blown that theory out of the water, right? Well, I think that if you take long enough view on it and you mm -hmm. go, well, what's the price of Bitcoin at the moment? It's like $40,000. And yeah, if you had said to somebody, is it at 38 at the moment? But if yeah. you'd said to somebody five years ago, you know, do you think Bitcoin will ever be worth $38,000? They would say, you're crazy. This thing is never going to be worth <laughs> anything. True. So if you think, if you had bought crypto five, Bitcoin five years ago, you would have gone, this is an amazing store of value. Yeah, but if yeah. you'd bought it at 45, you would have gone, this thing is rubbish. So it depends that on the timeline that you're looking at, and it depends on where it fits in into your overall portfolio. Sure, 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 sure. And um, central bank digital currencies, do you think they're going to be a real thing? I feel like that's just a different way of saying that we're going to issue currency that is on a blockchain. Um, I don't feel like there's anything, but I mean, these are permissioned blockchains, so they're yeah. not by their nature the same as Bitcoin. Bitcoin is supposed to be and was intended to be something that enables you to do cross-border payments without the need for a trusted intermediary. Uh, CBDCs are going to require you to have trusted intermediaries. Those trusted intermediaries are typically going to be the banks. Mm -hmm. Do I think that it it has the potential to reduce transaction fees and, and, and to make it easier for you to have accountless banking? Absolutely. Uh, and I think that it's very cool that you will eventually have a situation that where it will replace cash. It will make it cheaper uh, for you to transact. But I do think that there is a risk that once you have all transactions in a digital form that uh, regulators and, and I guess, tax authorities will try to take advantage of that information. And I think that that would be a pity if we, if we used it for reasons other than just genuinely making it easier for people to become economically active and right. to benefit from an overall increase in the level of economic activity that yeah. um, money issued on blockchain, I think, can enable. Yeah. Do you think central banks will eventually um, look to use central bank digital currencies as a way of kind of muscling out competitive currencies like 
Bitcoin and Ethereum and others out of the market? Well, I, I think that what, what the conclusion we've, we've come to before is that if you talk about money as a use case specifically or as a yeah. sort of medium of exchange um, or the medium of exchange use case, if you can pay your taxes in a cryptocurrency, it's going to be successful. And so I think that the countries that are taking the approach of saying, well, if you feel like you want to pay us in Bitcoin, that's going to be okay with us. Uh, I think that that suggests to me that there is going to be a place for some of these currencies. Do I okay. think, once again, that you can have thousands of them? No. Do I think that they make it a lot harder for countries to enact um, some of their um, controls? Absolutely, I do think that. Um, and so I can see from the perspective of the central banker how this complicates things for you. But I do think that if we take, you know, we mustn't forget that the idea that a central authority issues money is a relatively new concept. It's only a couple of hundred years old. And and before that, uh, you know, there were private issuances of money uh, right. that, do that dominated. And I think that it's okay if we have a mix of the two. Yes. Okay. Okay. And Lou, just finally, before I let you go, um, I know something that has you excited in this particular space is uh, something called social tokens. What, what are they exactly? Well, they're effectively this idea that you can convert yourself into an asset and enable people to participate in your personal economy. And, and I think that what that tells me is that in the age of sort of the I mean, we are very much, and, and Instagram has, has been maybe one of the drivers of that, maybe other things like Etsy, very much in the sort of the maker economy um, where you can turn your personal brand into something that is capable of being monetized. Yes. And I think that the cool thing about that particular application of the technology is that it enables your supporters to play a very active role in creating that value Um and I'd love to see where it goes. Uh, I think that one application of that, the obvious one is in social network environment. But I think yeah. for me, the more interesting one is when you issue a token that is specific to you or your community or you know your project and, yes. and have people play a role in creating that value. And a role, I guess, um, as Mark Zuckerberg would say it anyway, in, in whatever the future metaverse, if it comes along, is going to look like. What, what are you, what's your take on the metaverse as a concept? I, I was kind of neutral to that term, and now I try to avoid using it because I think that okay. it, has, it has become, it has started to become a catch-all phrase for a fully digital world. And, and, and the problem yes. is not that it's a catch-all phrase. The problem is that people use it now meaning different things. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that... Uh, what we're trying to say is that the world is going to be becoming more and more digital. There are emerging technologies like uh, augmented reality and virtual reality, which are going to enable us to create more immersive experiences. And one of the technologies that those technologies we think can work quite well with is blockchain technology. So, um, and so we can create uh, effectively fully digital um economies that don't exist in the real world um, and I think that that's cool and I, and I think that if we use that as a guiding post of just like we want to be able to create 
this virtual world where we can do things and exchange value and we can create experiences that enable us to exchange value in an yeah. easy way, um, then I, I think that that, I think that that is both exciting and, and possibly also a little dystopian, um, but it's, definitely something that we're going to do. And, uh, and I'm very curious to see how it works out. Me too, indeed. Uh, Lou, great, great chatting to you. Lou Clarsen is founder and managing partner at Newtown Partners. Thank you so much for talking to Tech Central today. Much appreciated. Thank you, Duncan.